the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Hey, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is producing Clark Hilton Engineering. Well, today we're going to reprise a conversation I had with Michael Knowles. He's the author of Speechless, Controlling Words, Controlling Minds, making that connection between who controls the vocabulary also controls, well, the mind. That's coming up in the second hour of today's program. Also, California parents are resisting uh, uh, their kids praying to an Aztec god and... Uh, Candidate McAuliffe is saying that parents shouldn't tell the schools what to uh, what to teach. In fact, they shouldn't be able to weigh in at all. That and more in the second hour of today's program. Well, today was dominated by the House Armed Services Committee and their hearing involving um, the military personnel, Millie, Austin and McKenzie on Afghanistan and China. Well, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley, he called the war in Afghanistan a strategic failure for the United States during his testimony before the committee, warning that the Taliban and remain a terrorist organization and maintain ties with al-Qaeda. Well, Milley made the comments testifying alongside Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, head of the U.S. Central Command General Kenneth McKenzie, for their second day of questions from lawmakers about the U.S. withdrawal of military assets from Afghanistan. Said uh, Mr. Milley in his testimony, the Taliban was and remain terrorist organization. They still have not broken ties with al-Qaeda. I have no illusions who they are and who we're dealing with. He added again that the Taliban have not broken with al-Qaeda. Well, Milley's testimony came after he and McKenzie on Tuesday at the Senate Armed Services Committee hearing said they assessed that the U.S. should maintain a presence of at least 2,500 troops in Afghanistan, despite the president's claim to the contrary. But the uh, chairman, Adam Smith, uh, call the uh, discrepancy a huge misunderstanding. He tried to clear it up, but wasn't able to do so. He referenced uh, some portion of the conversation the president had with Stephanopoulos in that interview in which he said no. Uh, there was unanimous consent, and he hadn't heard from any of his military representatives suggesting that uh, complete withdrawal was in the nation's best interest, at least that's not what he could remember. So there are two choices, the president lied or the president genuinely cannot remember. Both are not very good prospects for the country. Well, the president is uh, the one in charge. This is ultimately what civilian control of the military means. And what I believe is I believe certainly there were military commanders who said, nope, we should stick it out. We should keep twenty five hundred there. Smith said in his opening statement, I think they were wrong. And so did the president. Well, top Republican on the House Armed Services Committee, Representative Mike Rogers from Alabama during his opening statement, called the withdrawal an extraordinary disaster and one that will go down in history as one of the greatest failures of American leadership. I fear the president is delusional, Roberts, or rather Rogers said. Well, the president and the White House officials have said repeatedly that no military leaders advised him to leave a small military presence behind, with the president telling ABC News in August that no one recommended a 2,500 
troop presence that he could recall. Well, despite their testimony, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki said military advisors were split on whether to maintain a presence of U.S. troops in Afghanistan. There was a range of viewpoints, she says, as was evidenced by their testimony presented to the president and presented to his national security team, as would be expected, as he asked for, he asked for a clear eyed. He asked them not to sugarcoat it, what their recommendations were. Well, apparently he wasn't listening. You might uh, suggest maybe there wasn't unanimity, but to suggest he heard no dissenting voices that said twenty five hundred uh, should be uh, should remain there would certainly be a false statement. She maintained that. Um, Had the president decided to listen to advisors recommendations, the U.S. later would have had to increase the number of troops would have been at war with the Taliban. We would have more U.S. casualties. Well, that certainly would not necessarily have been the case if, in fact, um, civilians and others entitled to be evacuated were evacuated first and the troop drawdown were to follow. Ultimately, regardless of the advice, it is his decision, Saki said. He is the commander in chief. Well, it went on from there. Well, Pentagon leaders blame the State Department for the chaotic Afghanistan evacuation of civilians. It apparently wasn't the military's fault. It was the State Department's responsibility. Pressed on the timing of the evacuations, the Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin said it was, well, the State Department's call. Well, the top Pentagon officials blame the State Department for not beginning evacuations of civilians from Afghanistan sooner, calling the effort chaotic while defending the skill and leadership of U.S. troops during a hearing before the same committee, the Armed Services Committee in the House, focused on the military withdrawal. The U.S. military withdrawal from Afghanistan was complete on the 31st of August after successfully evacuating more than 124,000 individuals from Kabul, including 6,000 American citizens. Despite the large number of evacuations prior to the withdrawal date, at least 100 and some would argue hundreds of American citizens and thousands of Afghan allies remain in country. Well, pressed on why evacuations did not begin sooner, the defense secretary said it was a State Department call. We provide an input, so as I said in my opening statement to the State Department, this is General Austin speaking, explaining, though, that officials were being cautioned by the Ghani administration that if they withdrew American citizens and SI applicants at a pace that was too fast. It would cause a collapse of the government that we were trying to prevent. I think that went into the calculus. He added, though that military officials provided our input to the State Department, we certainly would have liked to see it go faster or sooner, Austin said. But again, they had a number of things to think through as well. Well, later, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, he described the evacuation efforts in the days leading up to the troop withdrawal deadline as chaotic, When asked about the best way to extract U.S. military from Afghanistan, I just want to be clear, he said, we're talking about two different missions, the retrograde of troops that is complete by mid-July. And that was done actually without any significant incident. And that's the handover of 11 bases, the bringing out of a lot of equipment that was done under the command of General Miller. Non-combatant evacuation operation is different, Milley said, referring to the Biden administration's effort to airlift Americans and Afghan allies from Kabul prior to the troop withdrawal deadline. Non-combatant operation that was done under conditions of great volatility, great violence, great threat. End quote. Well, Milley said the U.S. military um, inserted 6000 troops on relatively short notice because there were some contingency plans to do that. 
That's a different operation, he again insisted. And I think that in the first two days, as we saw, uh, were not only chaotic, but violent and high risk. He said, though, that because of the skill and leadership of our troops, they were able to get control of a situation in an airfield in a country that was falling apart and then execute the operation. Well, Millie and Austin's uh, testimony comes nearly a month after the Biden administration on 31st, the 31st of August, withdrew all U.S. military assets from the region after having a presence there for 20 years following the attacks on September 11th, 2001. One of the uh, representatives suggested that you may define the uh, significant withdrawal of Americans and others from um, Kabul, but we define success by the numbers who have been left behind. Meanwhile, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, General Mark Milley, confirmed that he told his Chinese counterpart that he would likely call ahead of any potential U.S. attacks on Beijing, maintaining he had that conversation at the director of then Defense Secretary Mark Esper. After assessing intelligence, suggesting heightened Chinese concerns about escalation between the two great powers. Milley addressed the allegations that he uh, held secret calls with his Chinese counterpart, General Li Zhaoqing of the People's Liberation Army on or rather in October of 2020 and days after the Capitol riot on uh, January uh, 9th in 2021, which were included in Peril, a book co-authored by Washington Post correspondents. Bob Woodward and Robert Costa. Interestingly, several members of the uh, committee, the House committee, suggested that they, too, were quoted in that book or rather misquoted that much of what um, uh, they had said was either misleading or altogether false, which raises questions about the veracity of the book. Well, Milley has faced calls to resign since the revelations were made public earlier this month. The Peril, a book by Costa, claims that Milley contacted Lee after he had reviewed intelligence that suggested Chinese officials believe the United States was planning an attack on China with military exercises in the South China Sea. The book claims that Milley contacted Lee a second time to reassure him that the U.S. would not make any type of advances to attack China. Uh, or uh, any other uh, country in the region. On Wednesday, during a hearing before the House Armed Services Committee focused on the U.S. military withdrawal from Afghanistan, Milley responded to questions about the allegations. He explained that there was a body of intelligence that led to the call with his Chinese counterpart. He didn't contradict the testimony. He did say that he hasn't read the book. He's maintained that for the last period of time, one would have thought since it's become such a significant controversy calling for an end to his career that he would have taken the time to read the book uh, to determine whether or not he was misquoted. But he did maintain uh, the cover of ignorance because he hadn't read it. So some of the members of the House committee actually read excerpts for him and then asked if he, in fact, had made those statements. He was sufficiently vague, even Uh, Under those circumstances as to he either didn't recall making certain statements or felt that they were taken out of context. So not a whole lot of clarity, except that the call to the Chinese um, counterpart had actually been made. Now, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue to take a look at some of the day's news. And then in the second hour, speechless, controlling words, controlling minds. That's the book we'll talk about with Michael Knowles. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, taking a look at some of the day's news. The top news story being the takeaway from the uh, testimony given by Millie, Austin and McKenzie on Afghanistan and China. Uh, in some cases, the answers were surprising. In other cases, the answers were surprising only in hearing top U.S. military leaders state publicly what already was suspected. The Senate Armed Services Committee got some answers uh, on Tuesday and the House uh, Committee on Wednesday from Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, Army General Mark Milley, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and Marine General Kenneth McKenzie, Jr., Commander of the U.S. Central Command. Well, most questions from senators focused on the Biden administration's withdrawal from Afghanistan. The word botched came up rather often. But they also wanted to know how about Milley's now infamous calls to his Chinese counterpart, General Li Zhaocheng, with the People's Liberation Army, while Donald Trump was still president. Austin, Milley, and McKenzie testified today before the House Armed Services Committee. Some of the takeaways uh, from their appearance at the Senate hearing, the military to Biden, leave 2,500 troops. Now, both Milley and McKenzie each said that they had backed keeping 2,500 American troops in Afghanistan and feared that less than that would risk that country falling into chaos, which, of course, it did. The president chose to do otherwise, saying publicly that he had no recollection of being told uh, by any of his uh, military advisors to do otherwise. Senator Tom Cotton inquired whether either the generals advised Biden uh, on the hasty Afghan exit. If all this is true, General Milley, why haven't you resigned? Cotton asked. Well, Milley answered that he was devoted to civilian control of the military. Resigning is a really serious thing. It's a political act. If I'm resigning in protest, my job is to provide advice. That's what the law is. The president doesn't have to agree with that advice. Milley, who's the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff since 2019, added to that answer. It would be an incredible act of political defiance for a commissioned officer to just resign because my advice was not taken. My dad didn't get a chance to resign at Iwo Jima and those kids there in Abbey Gate. They don't get the choice to resign and I'm not going to turn my back on them. Abbey Gate is the entrance to the Kabul airport where the terrorist bombing occurred on the 29th, killing 13 American service members and hundreds of Afghans. Another takeaway, what generals say when asked if Biden, the president, if he lied or just simply had no recollection as a president ought on such significant matters. Well, the president said on the 19th of last month in an interview with ABC News that he didn't recall any uh, anyone making a recommendation to him about leaving a troop contingency behind in Afghanistan, which the U.S. and coalition forces invaded in 2001. ABC News anchor George Stephanopoulos had posed the question. He's a former White uh, Clinton White House official. And he asked Biden, your troop military advisors warned against withdrawing on this timeline. They wanted to keep about 2,500 troops. The president responded, no, they didn't. It was split, he said. That wasn't true. That wasn't true. Uh, He was continued um, to be pressed by Stephanopoulos and ultimately said that he had had not heard uh, any uh, dissent for his plan and that uh, at least that he could not recall. Um, Biden held firm. Well, after Cotton asked for a direct answer of the secretary, he said using passive voice, their input was received by the president for sure. So making uh, clear that the president did, in fact, know that they had a different view on what was to happen. Senator Dan Sullivan later pushed the generals on Biden's statement. He's not telling the truth to the American people, he he said. The president said none of his military advisors told him that he should keep U.S. forces in Afghanistan. General Milley. Uh, That was a false statement by the president of the United States, was it not? Milley first wavered. I didn't even see the statement to tell you the truth, Milley said. That's always an easier way out. Uh, He then went on to um, 
to say after being pressed, uh, I'm not going to categorize a statement of the president of the United States. Sullivan said, I think we all know it was a false statement. Notably, neither the defense secretary nor the two generals said Biden made a true statement. Then there was the uh, China calls. That was uh, rather interesting to hear a a direct answer to the question. And uh, again, uh, the fact that the general had not actually read the book to know what was said that he said gave him something of an out. But there were members in the House committee anyway that actually read the excerpt from the book to uh, lift that cover. Without being asked, Milley talked about his conversation in the Senate hearing with Lee, chief of the Joint Staff Department of China's Central Military Commission regarding President Trump. I routinely communicated with my colleague, General Lee, with the knowledge and coordination of civilian oversight. I am specifically directed to communicate with with the Chinese by Department of Defense guidance, the policy uh, dialogue system, and so on. Milley's source uh, for uh, was the source for the Woodward book, other anti-Trump authors as well, and he was criticized during today's hearing on that very point. Milley said he spoke with authors of all the recent anti-Trump books in response to question from Senator Marsha Blackburn. The Army General said he talked to Woodward, but not Costa for peril. He said he also spoke with authors Carol Leoning and Philip Brucker, also Washington Post reporters, for their book, I Alone Can Fix It, Donald J. Trump's catastrophic final years and spoke with Michael Bender, a Wall Street Journal reporter for his book. Frankly, we did win this election, the inside story of how Trump lost. We were. Were you actually represented in these books or accurately later in the hearing? Um, uh, Millie said that he hadn't read the books. I haven't read any of them, so I don't know. I've seen press reporting of it. I haven't read the books. Blackburn followed with a homework assignment. Uh, let's have you read the books and let us know if you were accurately presented and portrayed. Millie answered, absolutely happy to do that. He hadn't read anything uh, since in the House hearing today. How many Air- Americans are left? He was asked the question or the the military leaders were asked the question. Uh, how many American citizens, in your opinion, are still there? Inhofe, the committee's ranking member, asked about Afghanistan. The military leaders indicated they aren't sure how many American civilians remain behind after the military evacuation. Austin, at first, deferred the question to the State Department. Inhofe noted that early estimates by Secretary of State Anthony Blinken were that between 10,000 and 15,000 Americans were left behind. Another notable um, uh, st- series of statements, Milley said Trump wanted out in January. Milley said that the former president at one point directed that the remaining 2,500 troops get out of Afghanistan by the 15th of January, but backed away from that decision. If true, that deadline would have been five days before Trump left office. Trump settled uh, on May the 1st as a departure deadline before that date was moved by Biden after he took office in January, Milley said. Critics of Biden's exit from Afghanistan said it isn't the withdrawal that's the issue, but the way in which the administration and its military did it. Success and failure, another notable. Well, uh, Milley admitted that the Afghanistan exit didn't go the way the generals had hoped. It was a logistical success, but a strategic failure. I think those are two different things. Austin stressed it was the largest airlift conducted in U.S. history, and it was executed in 17 days. Was it perfect? Of course not. But Austin summarized the low points. Tragically, lives were lost. Several Afghans killed climbing aboard an aircraft on the first day. Thirteen brave U.S. service members and dozens of Afghan civilians killed in a terrorist attack on the 26th. And we took as many as 10 innocent lives in a drone strike in Kabul on the 29th. 
Well, again, uh, one of the House members uh, that Austin would address the, the following day, which is today, suggested that success is not measured by the number of people you evacuated, by, but rather by the number of people you left behind. Again, some notables from yesterday's hearing, today's hearing um, having taken place in the House today. Well, the uh, school board of Portland Public Schools is discussing the possibility of a COVID-19 vaccine mandate for students. That was Tuesday night. The mandate would for uh, be for students 12 years and older, according to the Oregon Public Broadcasting um, Journal team. Well, members of the school board uh, heard from public health officials, a pediatrician and emergency room doctor last night all of whom supported getting more kids vaccinated, no dissenting voices. We know that coronaviruses uh, in particular are very good at creating variants. They're fast at it. That's a quote from Tress Goodwin, an emergency medicine physician at Children's National Hospital. And so from a public health perspective and the longevity of this pandemic, the least number of people, whether they're little or big, getting infected and giving the virus a playground to create new variants is really important. End quote. Well, some school board members expressed concern about alienating families who may be hesitant to get the vaccine or may have trouble accessing it. It's not clear yet uh, if or when the board will vote on a mandate. OPB reported that dis- uh, district officials will hold two virtual town halls prior to the board considering and voting on a vaccine requirement. So if you are in the uh, Portland Public School District, you might want to keep your ear to the ground for those two public hearings that will give you an opportunity to weigh in either in favor of or in opposition to a mandate for youngsters. Meanwhile, America's got a mismatched um, set of fears related to uh, COVID-19. Concern about getting COVID-19 among the vaccinated and the unvaccinated varies rather dramatically. Vaccinated people concerned about getting a breakthrough case, 58 percent. Unvaccinated people concerned about contracting COVID-19 at all, 44 percent. Well, vaccinated Americans are more worried about contracting a COVID infection than the unvaccinated, according to a new Harris poll uh, that was conducted in consultation with the CDC and provided exclusively to Axios. Why does it matter? Well, the science says that the unvaccinated have much more to fear and are largely driving the current surge of hospitalizations and deaths. They would disagree. What they found, more than half of respondents said they think breakthrough cases are common, including 68 percent of unvaccinated respondents, worrying 60 percent of unvaccinated, uh, I should say worryingly, 60 percent of unvaccinated respondents say they think breakthrough cases prove the existing coronavirus vaccines aren't effective compared to only 26 percent of all respondents. By the numbers among vaccinated respondents, three quarters said uh, that if they were to get a breakthrough case, They'd be uh, concerned about spreading the virus. So rather interestingly, those who are concerned about getting COVID-19 are the vaccinated. Those unconcerned or less are the unvaccinated. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. We're going to talk about um, last year's heroes who happen to be this year's scapegoats. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Reminder, we're going to uh, share my conversation with Michael Knowles. Speechless is the title of his book, Controlling Words, Controlling Minds. That's coming up in the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, essential workers were heralded last year as heroes, and rightfully so. They continued in-person work while the coronavirus spread across the nation. Now those same workers are facing terminations and resignations 
due to vaccine mandates implemented by the government and private organizations. So which is it? Are they heroes or are they scapegoats? We worked hard, one Indiana nurse said, referring to healthcare workers who continued caring for patients during the pandemic. I came home and cried, fell to my knees and cried. I had five people die in one day. Now she's out of a job after not complying with the vaccine mandate at the hospital in Indianapolis where she works. She's no longer even proud to wear the Frontline Heroes shirts that were popular last year. What a difference 365 days can make. They don't understand this stuff that we've gone through, or they don't care, she said, about hospital officials who mandated that all employees get vaccinated. She isn't alone. We were celebrated last year, said fellow Indiana nurse um, uh, Adra Allen. But a few nurses uh, did end up leaving due to the hospital not accepting their medical issues or having reaction or reverse effect to the first dose of the COVID vaccine. Now, she had previously worked at a different hospital, but was told to no longer come into work due to her refusing the vaccine. She's pregnant, and though the CDC recommends the vaccination for pregnant women, her pregnancy is considered high risk. She previously suffered a miscarriage and has issues with blood clots, but that doesn't matter. One size fits all. Last year, you were a hero. This year, well, you're nothing. If I lost another baby and I didn't know what it was from, I couldn't forgive myself, she says, last week after the vaccine mandate took effect at the hospital where she works. She applied for a medical exemption due to her pregnancy, but was denied by the hospital. Healthcare workers, firefighters and police officers are resigning or facing termination across the country for refusing to comply with vaccine mandates. And some are even taking to the streets to protest. And while frontline heroes of 2020 navigate their employment futures, a dire staffing shortage is on the horizon for various industries in 2021. Dozens of Massachusetts state troopers are putting in their resignations this month following Republican Governor Charlie Baker's um, executive order requiring all executive department employees to show proof of vaccination on uh, or before the 17th of next month. The resignations could harm the safety of Massachusetts citizens as well as the troopers who remain on the force. Massachusetts has a homicide solve and conviction rate of over 85 percent. It's a model for the country. That's what the State Police Association of Massachusetts uh, spokesperson had to say. But now, with state police already facing staffing shortages and looking at resignations piling up, those numbers are going to take a hit if they reassign troopers to cope with the shortages. Well, lawsuits surrounding the mandates have also mounted, including from Massachusetts State Police Association, which attempted to uh, delay the vaccine mandate, but a judge denied that suit. Firefighters are also working through the pandemic, are facing similar instances of vaccine mandates, and some are willing to risk their careers to defy the orders. I've been in emergency service for 28 years, making decisions that impact people's lives every day, says one firefighter. In fact, chief from Aurora, Oregon, Josh Williams. Earlier this month, after filing a lawsuit against Oregon over the mandates, this isn't about science, this is about power, he added, and the people have had enough, and I'm not going to put up with it anymore. Well, meanwhile, protests have been organized outside the hospital, or several hospitals in recent weeks, with staffers holding signs reading, we are still essential, say no to vaccines and yes to freedom of choice, Healthcare heroes demand medical freedom, and don't fire last year's heroes. In New York, a state where healthcare workers faced grueling shifts as hospitals racked up patients at the height of the pandemic, last year's heroes are already out of their jobs. I'm assuming I'm not uh, employed any longer. It's my understanding that there is no notice or letter going out 
says a physician's assistant in western New York, speaking to um, the intelligencer. I, uh, like a lot of people, I work with uh, felt forced into um, uh, getting vaccinated, but I'm not changing my mind. I'm not better off than any of them. I just feel very strongly, she added. Well, the state's vaccine mandate for health care workers took effect on Monday. The Democratic Governor Kathy Hochul expanded who can work in the healthcare industry to cope with the staffing shortages and said she may call on medically trained National Guard members to also fill the vacant roles. The out-of-work healthcare workers are now trying to nail down other job opportunities. One nurse in New York who was granted a religious exemption from the mandate for now says she's looking at moving to Florida, where the Republican Governor Ron DeSantis has said vaccine mandates are not about science but government power. I'm not ready to not be a nurse anymore, and this would basically eliminate me from being a nurse in the entire state, says uh, that nurse. We would probably be okay on savings for at least a handful of months. After that, I already have an RN license to work in the state of Florida, and it looks more and more each day like we'll probably end up selling our house and moving. Vaccine or unemployment, that seems to be the choice that many are now being forced to decide. Well, Florida park documents confirm that the Laundry family camped out after Gabby Petito's disappearance. I'm not going to talk a lot about this, but this is a new development. Brian Landry's, or rather Laundry's mom, checked into a Florida park about 75 miles north of the family's home earlier this month. Records obtained uh, from the park show. The 23-year-old vanished on the 14th of September. His 22-year-old fiancé was found dead in Wyoming on the 19th of September, weeks after the couple was seen camping near the site where her remains were found. The coroner ruled her death a homicide. Dwayne Dog Chapman, also known as Dog the Bounty Hunter, announced on Saturday he was entering the search for laundry. Uh, he told um, local media that he learned Monday that the parents spent the night at Fort Soto Park with their son twice in early September, um, and that is, again, close to where the body was found. The documents confirm that Chapman's suspicion that the uh, laundries uh, went camping at Fort DeSoto Park outside St. Petersburg between his return from uh, out west on the 1st of September and the day Petito's mother reported her missing on the 11th. They show the family checked in on the 6th of September, out on the 8th, but there's no record on the document of them the week prior. So, the case continues, along with lots of other cases of missing people across the Fruited Plain. The Progressive Caucus says uh, no infrastructure without reconciliation as the Dems' division becomes apparent. Now, that has changed. There are some members who say, yes, we'll embrace that. Others who say, no, we're going to have to move forward, including House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Just days after the House Speaker went on ABC's This Week to vow that Democrats will pass the $1 trillion infrastructure plan this week, progressives in the party did their own promising Representative Pramia Jayapal's Congressional Progressive Caucus on Tuesday issued a stinging rebuke of the voting on the bipartisan package without first passing President Biden's $3.5 trillion or closer to $5 to $6 trillion Build Back Better reconciliation package. The caucus said it's still committed to delivering the transformative change that people throughout this country urgently want, need and deserve, end quote. Well, the 96-member coalition said the agenda is not some fringe wish list. Well, yeah, it kind of is. It is the president's agenda, the Democratic agenda, and what we promised voters when they delivered us the House, the Senate, and the White House, end quote. Democrats may have control, but they're working with a razor-thin majority in the Senate and a House divided. Pelosi once held the position that the House 
would only pass the infrastructure bill if they also passed the reconciliation bill. But Politico reported on Monday that she changed her opinion after she found out that Democrats could reduce the three point five trillion dollar price tag. It all changed. So our approach had to change with it, she told her caucus on Monday. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in the next hour, we'll share a conversation with Michael Knowles, author of Speechless, Controlling Words, Controlling Minds. That's coming up in our second hour. Well, Vice President Kamala Harris applauded a student who accused Israel of ethnic genocide for speaking your truth. Now, this just it just can I just be it just irks me. Either they are um, guilty of committing ethnic genocide or they're not your truth to be applied to what a nation thousands of miles away is doing or is being accused of doing has nothing to do with your truth. Vice President um Uh, Harris nodded while the student accused Israel of ethnic genocide, then responded by saying the student's truth should not be suppressed. Can you interchange that with opinion? And can you inform her opinion? Is that a true statement or not? Well, after speaking at the uh, George Mason University in Fairfax, Virginia, the um, National Voter Registration Day um, commemoration, uh, the vice president took questions from the audience. That's when the female student raised questions about the money the U.S. is providing to Israel and Saudi Arabia. I see that over the summer there have been like protests and demonstrations and astronomical numbers uh, about the Palestinian cause, the student said. She went on to note just how uh, a few days ago, like there were funds allocated to continue like backing Israel, which hurts my heart because like ethnic genocide and displacement of like people, the same that happened in America. And like, I'm sure you're aware of this, like. Well, the student went on to allege that the money that would otherwise go to Americans struggling with housing and health care costs goes instead to inflaming Israel and uh, backing Saudi Arabia and whatnot. Well, the vice president has a tremendous opportunity to educate the student. Why does the United States contribute to the defense system in Israel? Is her statement true? Uh, but she doesn't do that. She just urges the student to embrace her own truth and not to be suppressed. She supplies that uh, replied, rather, the vice president, that she was glad the student brought up such concerns and went on to say her opinion should be heard in a democracy. OK, but in an education setting, there was much more that could have been done anyway. Uh, in other news, Israeli prime minister slammed woke opponents in his push to stop Iran from gaining nuclear weapons. And South Dakota Governor Christy Nome says the media is trying to destroy her children after a report over her daughter's real estate certification was denied. In yesterday's gubernatorial debate, candidate McAuliffe says he doesn't believe parents should tell schools what to teach. They shouldn't be involved. And many, uh, Manny Pacquiao, rather, has announced his retirement. I thought he was already retired. Well, the head of J.P. Morgan is warning a catastrophic event Maybe coming for your wallet and President Biden canceled plans as he tries to save the Democrats floundering bills. And the uh, future is by no means certain at this point. A major U.S. airline has halted its vaccine mandate for employees seeking exemptions and a five hundred million dollar incentive package is being pitched to Ford for a factory in this state. 
Well, testimony indicated the president lied about Afghanistan advice from his military leaders, although they didn't use the word. The hearing underscored that the president acted against the advice of the military in yanking the residual U.S. force from the country. Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff General Mark Milley and General Kenneth McKenzie both made clear in their testimony that they recommended that about 2,500 U.S. troops stay in Afghanistan to delay a Taliban takeover. Katie Pavlish reminds us that during an interview with ABC News anchor George Stephanopoulos in August, as the chaotic withdrawal from the country was underway, the president claimed he was never given advice to keep a small residual force of U.S. troops in the country. No one said that to me that I can recall, the president said. No, they didn't. Well, a top U.S. general warned the Taliban um, to stay out of Kabul or risk airstrikes. Well, that didn't help. Uh, But they came in anyway, and the president let them have the city. From the story, General Frank McKenzie, head of the U.S. Central Command, met with Taliban leaders Abdul Ghani Baradar as the terror group surrounded Kabul, preparing for a finish and a final push to topple the Afghan government. McKenzie warned Barber that should a Taliban force come within 20 to 30 kilometers of the city, the militants would be hit by U.S. airstrikes, according to the report. Of course, there were no airstrikes, and they overrun the city. Bernie Sanders is telling House Democrats to hold the infrastructure bill hostage until the massive reconciliation package passes. California shoplifters showed up with wire cutters to calmly remove security tags. Lindsay Rodriguez filmed the two and followed them out to their car. She also called police and was able to give them a license plate for the car in which they drove away. Strangely, employees at Marshall's watched the whole thing happen, didn't even call the police or report the theft. Companies have uh, policies preventing employees from chasing shoplifters out of the store, but this is the first time that we've heard of uh, them not even bothering to call the police. Now, in California, it probably wouldn't have um, been very successful. A new poll, more believe it's too easy to vote rather than too difficult. According to a morning consult poll, 44% of adults believe that current voting laws are not strict enough to prevent voters from being case Um, from, yeah, case illegally. That's the phrase they're using. Only 33% think that current voting laws make it too difficult for eligible citizens to vote. Independent voters believe 35 to 29% that it is too easy to vote rather than too difficult. Hispanics are evenly split on the question, with 30% of black voters believe that voting laws are too permissive. CNN's Chris Cuomo is facing accusations from women, plural. First, from former executive producer Shelley Rose, who says he harassed her and now sources indicate another executive producer felt threatened a black Lives matter or blm organizer is threatening new york city with floyd style protests over the vaccine mandate as the mandate clearly hits blacks more than any other race she says virginia governor says that parents have no business in what schools teach during the tuesday debate mcauliffe made the point hugh hewitt points out that terry mcauliffe Exiling parents from control of curriculum and his pandering to teachers unions is an enormous unforced error. Ryan Anderson says parents have the primary responsibility for and authority over the education of their kids. Schools should be accountable to parents and public schools to citizens. Of course, parents, citizens should be telling schools what they should teach. Poll vaccinated people are far more fearful than unvaccinated people. And UCLA plans to require proof of vaccination to enter the Rose Bowl. Only the properly compliant can see the game live. 
Jerry Bauer points out, I decided to get vaccinated, not because the government told me to. My research led me to this decision. But no one should be forcing conservatives into groupthink for or against voluntary vaccinations. And by the way, the vast majority are not conservative. They're PhDs and ethnic minorities. Afghanistan. General Mark Milley, Kenneth McKenzie say they recommended 2,500 troops to stay in country. Press Secretary Jen Psaki doesn't damage control by saying there was a range of viewpoints. Mitch McConnell stopped Chuck Schumer's latest attempt to raise the debt ceiling, and Democrats have backed off the debt fight to stop a shutdown. CNN slams the faulty media narrative of the Border Patrol whipping Haitians, which it pushed for a week. Apparently, they forgot that part. During yesterday's hearing, General Milley says he wasn't trying to usurp Trump, and he was certain he would not have ordered an attack on China. Florida sues the Biden administration over border the border crisis there, saying the states are the ones uh, that are affected by all of this. The Arizona border is flaring up as a new illegal immigration hotspot. And now even Barack Obama admits open borders are unsustainable. By the way, in an interview, um, that was eliminated from the broadcast. Home prices rose at a record pace for the fourth consecutive month, and the feared eviction tsunami hasn't happened Well, on this day in history, 1789, the U.S. War Department establishes a regular army with a strength of 700 men. 1829, London's uh, reorganized police force, which would become known as Scotland Yard, goes on duty. 1918, Allied forces began their decisive breakthrough of the Hindenburg Line during World War I. 1938, British, French, German and Italian leaders conclude the Munich Agreement, which is aimed at appeasing Adolf Hitler by allowing Nazi annexation of Czechoslovakia's Sudetenland. 1978, Pope John Paul is found dead in his Vatican apartment just over a month after becoming head of the Roman Catholic Church. 1982, extra strength Tylenol capsules laced with deadly cyanide claim the first of seven victims in a Chicago area. To date, the case remains unsolved. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, News and Traffic up next, and we'll have a conversation with Michael Knowles, author of Speechless, Controlling Words, Controlling Minds. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My next guest makes the point that the culture war is over and the culture is lost. The left's assault on liberty, virtue, decency, the Republican form of government the founders established and Western civilization has succeeded. Well, how did we get to this point? That's the question. Well, in speechless, controlling words, controlling minds, national bestselling author and political commentator Michael Knowles of the Daily Wire reveals how political correctness is part of a large political agenda to stifle free thought. Through strategic control of language, he exposes and diagnoses the losing strategy that conservatives have fallen for and shows how they can change course and start winning. Well, my next guest once again is uh, Michael Knowles. He is a conservative political commentator, the host of The Michael Knowles Show at The Daily Wire. In addition to his daily podcast, he frequently writes opinion commentary and speaks on college campuses for the Young America's Foundation. In 2017, he published an Amazon best-selling book, Reasons to Vote for Democrats, a comprehensive guide, which consisted of chapter headings and 266 accompanying blank pages. Well, shortly after the book was released, then-President Donald Trump tweeted his endorsement of the book. Once again, he joins us today to talk about his latest, Speechless, Controlling Words, Controlling 
minds. Michael Knowles, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. It's so good to be with you, and I'm I'm so uh, honored that you had mentioned both books, one without any words in it, <laughs> and then the other entirely about words. <laughs> now, is, <laughs> what a breath to talk about. Is there an irony in that? <laughs> one on language, <laughs> the other <laughs> lacking language. <laughs> yes, I, I felt it was really the only way to follow up with the number one best-selling blank book. And I, I was, I'm really honored. I, I have to tell you, when I, when I came out with Speechless, I feared that people would not want to buy the book. It seems like a little bit of a dry topic, you know, <laughs> words and manipulation of language. And I feared that the critics would tell me to stick to what I know, namely nothing. But I'm, I'm really pleased, and I, I thank everybody who's made it, made Speechless a number one national bestseller, because I, I think this is the, the biggest problem that we face as a country. I know we're focused on wars overseas, we're focused on the economy and immigration. But frankly, I think that the left's manipulation of our language is the most effective tool that they have at reshaping our political order, because it reshapes our minds and it frankly reshapes our whole society. You make the point in the book that people often respond to that by saying, well, it's just simply semantics. But if we understand what semantics means, we understand the importance of resting control over the language and the impact that ultimately has the potential to make. That's right. Semantics means the meaning of words. So when people say, oh, it's just semantics, you think, well, that's that's sort of the whole argument, isn't it? And, and we're reminded that that whoever frames the issue wins the debate. And I, I think this is why the left is so focused on language. Who cares, they'll say, uh, if you call an illegal alien an undocumented American. And obviously the left cares, because what the left understands is that an illegal alien has no right to be in this country. But an undocumented American is an American by definition, so they obviously do. And I think this is why you're, you're seeing in particular the battle over the pronouns. Mm-hmm. So often I'll hear my conservative friends, they'll say, oh, just give up the pronouns. Just call Bruce Jenner she. It's not a big deal. Well, well I, I think it probably is a big deal. I think that's why the left is investing so much time and energy in, into making us call men she and women he, because if Caitlyn Jenner is a she, then she has every right to use the women's bathroom or play women's sports. If Bruce Jenner is a he, then he obviously does not have a right to, to the women's bathroom. So I think that the reason that this gender pronoun issue has become such a focal point is that if the left can redefine sexual difference, the fundamental distinction in human nature, then the left can redefine anything. And I think that's really their, their goal here is to redefine all the words in an attempt to remake reality entirely. The problem is they understand that the rest of us may not. Um, You write that the irony lies at the heart of political correctness. To call something politically correct is to acknowledge that it is not correct, at least by the standard of reality. A man in a dress is a man, but according to political correctness, he is a trans woman, a term with the same ironic structure. To call someone a trans woman is to acknowledge that he is not really a woman at all. Uh, understanding the power of the language we use, we choose to use, or we're being forced to use, really is at the heart of the issue. Yes, and we have been told since political correctness hit the public imagination about 30 years ago, I think I argue in Speechless that it has been developed for about a century, but we became aware of it about three or four decades ago, and we were told it was just a way of being polite. Yes, it uses euphemisms, you know, soft words to sugarcoat harsh realities, but but we do that all the time. When I refer to a woman of a certain age instead of to an old hag, I'm, <laughs> I'm just being polite. I'm, I'm softening reality. Can I but just say thank you political... before you move on? 
<laughs> you know, speaking to someone who is obviously 29 years old, I, I would never use either of those terms. But, but, you know, there is a big difference here between the way that the left and the right use euphemism, because it's one thing to, to say, I'm going to go to the powder room instead of the bathroom. Uh, there might be powder in that room, depending on whatever, whatever else you're going to do there either. Uh, but, but there's a difference between that and referring to, for instance, a justice-involved person. That's the new euphemism for criminal. <laughs> it's used in the academy. It's used in legal circles. And it doesn't just soften the reality of a criminal. It inverts it. Whatever you want to call a criminal, he sure isn't involved in justice. And I, I think you, you see it clearly as well in this trans woman argument. Whatever you want to call Bruce Jenner, he's not a woman of any kind. And so I don't think it's a, a matter of being polite. I think it's a way of deceiving people. I think it's a way of lying to people. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, we're living in those delusions. Right now, we're living in, in that culture of lies. You write that conservatives have failed to thwart political correctness because most of us don't understand what it is. Political correctness is not merely a synonym for censorship, though the two concepts are related. Political correctness is a standard of speech and behavior along leftist ideological lines. It no doubt censors certain words and actions, but then so does chivalry. Let's begin by um, talking about what political correctness is. It's not a matter of just censorship and liberty. It's much more profound than that, and you've touched on it already. Well, uh, thank you. I'm glad you, you focused on that point, because I think this is the essential point of the book. It is what I'm trying to get across to conservatives who may have their hearts in the right place, they have the best of intentions, but I think they are unwittingly actually advancing the cause of political correctness because they fail to recognize what PC is. So there's this strange fact that you know, we've been fighting over PC for several decades, and it seems the harder we fight, the more ground we lose. I think it is because the right has understood this or misunderstood this to be a battle between free speech and censorship. You always hear today, free speech is, is on the decline or cancel culture is on the rise. But in many ways, we're much freer to say certain things today than we were in the past. We're now permitted to say all of those naughty words that George Carlin said could not be said on TV. In fact, these days it seems like it's almost obligatory. Uh, however, we're not allowed to state plain political truths. We're not allowed to say that a man is not a woman. We're not allowed to say that a baby is a baby in some cases. We're not allowed to say that our country is a good place, or we could be accused of bigotry or, or, or white supremacy or, or any other sort of slogan. We're not allowed to question our elections. We are not allowed to raise questions about massive public health uh, policies that are, are being advocated. So there's a little bit of a give and take. I think what's, what's really happening here is less a battle between pure free speech on the one hand and pure censorship on the other as it is shifting the limits of discourse. There are always going to be limits. There are always going to be taboos. There are always going to be standards. And what the left did in the middle of the 20th century was upend all of those standards. And now I think they're being resettled again in ways that are are really advantageous to the left and really harmful to the traditional American way of life. We're talking this afternoon with Michael Knowles. He's written a very important book. I would highly recommend all of us read it. Speechless, Controlling Words, Controlling Minds. We need to take a quick break, but we will continue in just a few moments. Again, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Michael Knowles, his latest book, Speechless, Controlling Words, Controlling Minds. I think it's absolutely essential that we better understand what political correctness is, the power that it has, and the power we can deprive it if we understand the role that we ought to play in resisting this um, this move. Now, you make the point that conservatives have wasted decades attempting to thwart political correctness, or PC, through dime store philosophizing over free speech, progressively abandoning our, substan- our substantive cultural inheritance for a misbegotten notion of liberty that can never exist in practice. Have we wasted so much time, as you point out, decades, that we can't, once understanding political correctness, do something to reverse the trend in the culture, which you know sort of came late to this process, that the culture was the focus. Can we reverse what we're seeing? I do think there's a glimmer of hope. You know, the difference between a conservative optimist and a conservative pessimist is a conservative pessimist says things can't get any worse, and a conservative optimist says, oh, yes, they can. (laughs) But but I I do think that there is a glimmer of hope here. And you're seeing it at school boards. You're seeing it with parents showing up and saying, we're not going to let you indoctrinate our kids with these radical gender and racial theories. These are parents who run the gamut of class, of race, of geography. So I, I do think the American people still have common sense. But our ruling class, unfortunately, does not have common sense. And that includes the so-called conservative leaders and Republican leaders. And I think one of the biggest issues with our misunderstanding of PC is we don't understand what liberty is. So we think that because you're allowed to say a bunch of swear words on TV, that you somehow have more freedom of speech in in, in certain ways. But it's it's not – it isn't quite so simple. Uh, You know, what our founding fathers understood is that Liberty is not licentiousness. Liberty is not the ability to do whatever you want whenever you want to do it. Liberty is the right to do what you ought to do. Liberty intrinsically mm-hmm. has limits. But the way I would bring it down to earth is just that according to the modern liberal view of liberty, uh, the heroin addict is the freest person in the world as long as he's got a couple bucks in his pocket and he can shoot up. Isn't he? He's so free. He's pursuing his desires. Now, of course, you and I know that man's not free at all. He's a slave. He's a slave to his base appetites, his basest passions. And in the traditional American and just generally classical understanding, we've understood liberty as the suppression of our basest appetites and and bringing them into accord with our higher will. That was the whole point of liberal education is to make sense of your liberty and to enable you to govern yourself and to be a citizen. This is why when John Adams says the Constitution is built for moral and religious people, he's not he's not thumping his Bible. He's not being superstitious. He's just making an obvious observation about politics, which is that if if you do not govern yourself, someone is going to have to come in and rule you. And so I think what the left did was they basically blew up all the standards at the latter part of the 20th century, and they upended our ability to govern ourselves and our higher liberty. And now that we're all living in a sort of decadent and licentious culture, uh, they are the ones that are imposing the necessary limits on us. You point out in your chapter on standards and practices that uh, radical theorists hadn't long pursued culture as their means of revolution before artists and producers of culture 
uh, took notice and you give a, a something of a history. Talk a bit about how the communists figured out that their revolution could never succeed as long as the common man was uh, attached to his own culture and the significance of culture being the focus of uh, so much of what the left is trying to impact and change because it has the potential to have much broader impact in other areas. Well, this is the brilliance of the, the man who I identify as the Mac Daddy godfather. Of <laughs> he was an, an early cultural Marxist. I know that it's now politically incorrect to use that term, but he's a very, very prominent Marxist philosopher who focused on culture. His name is Antonio Gramsci. And, and he recognized that the, the reason the Marxian revolution had not happened is because the radicals had all these wonderful theories for upending society and, and liberating the poor oppressed masses. But the poor oppressed masses actually didn't really like the theories. <laughs> they liked their own culture and their own people and their own rituals. And so what Gramsci recognized is that the radicals had to attain cultural hegemony. They had to go in, infiltrate the established institutions, transform those institutions uh, into a position that is uh, more advantageous to them. And then and only then would they be able to make lasting gains. So this this was followed up by other leftist intellectuals. I'm thinking of the Frankfurt School, the critical theorists. Critical race theory is very much in the news these days. One of those critical theorists, Herbert Marcuse, reappears in the 1960s. He becomes the father of the new left, radical student movement. And th- this is where you saw the importation of Mao's writings, uh, you know, the communist dictator in China. You saw the rise of other radical groups, uh, student groups and non-student groups in the United States. And so I I don't want to sound like a tinfoil hat person or like a conservative broken record when I I mention that political correctness has Marxist roots. Marx isn't responsible for every problem in the world, but he is responsible for a great many of them. (laughs) And the, the people who developed this called themselves Marxists. And the phrase political correctness actually is a Marxist phrase. It was used by old-line communists. And I think actually the whole endeavor comes from a line that Karl Marx wrote to Arnold Ruga, which is uh, when he called for the ruthless criticism of all that exists. I think that is largely what political correctness has been about. It has been about ruthlessly criticizing the nation, the family, the culture, the religion, the beliefs, the values, everything about the country. Hollow it out from within so that in that now ruin of a civilization, a revolution can take place along leftist lines. So when the founder of Black Lives Matter says that I am thoroughly trained in Marxism, we ought to take that seriously, recognizing what that means. When BLM says, uh, you know, hollowing out the, the traditional family is one of our goals, we need to take that seriously and recognize what the ultimate goal is. Yes, when people tell you who they are, you should believe them. Absolutely. <laughs> That's not just not just that one founder of BLM, but actually their two co-founders as well, self-described Marxists. On the website, they talk about disrupting the Western prescribed nuclear family. Last I checked, you know, I've got some I've got many friends of color all around the country and their most important racial issue to their minds is not upending the nuclear family, but but that is something that Marxist activists have been after for a century. And and so I think we do need to believe them. And uh, I think we need to recognize that the threat here is not not just to some policy or some other policy or one city or another. This is posing an existential threat to our entire way of life. Yeah, absolutely. And you can count me among your African-American friends 
or black or Negro or whichever is the, in vogue uh, at the moment. Uh, once again, we're talking this afternoon with Michael Knowles. He's the author most recently of Speechless, Controlling Words, Controlling Minds. And by the way, there are lots of words in this book, if you're wondering. Uh, <laughs> covers all the important issues and helps us as conservatives recognize where we have fallen short, first of all, in understanding what political correctness is and then responding in a way that's going to be uh, effective. You have a chapter on the tolerant left and make reference early on to Maxine Waters, that influential Democrat politician who held uh, elected office since, as you point out, uh, and I'm reminded, the Ford administration. Um, and she has uh, suggested that um, uh, those who opposed at that time Donald Trump uh, need to pull out all the stops. We need, need to make the world a place where anyone who supports or worked with or embraces Donald Trump and his worldview, uh, there's no place for them in the world. That doesn't really reflect what we were led to believe political correctness was about and the tolerant left uh, urging us to embrace what um, we otherwise would not. Well, that's right. The tolerance was always... Uh, merely an instrument. It was just a, a tool, a, a fake out, so that they could install their new standards in the world. I think of Maxine Waters and, and other prominent Democrats who openly called for violence against conservatives because the, what the left did was define their own violence as speech and define conservative speech as violence. And I think this has roots going back to Herbert Marcuse and the New Left. There's an infamous little essay that he wrote called repressive tolerance. And in it, he said that tolerance cannot tolerate intolerance. And he said that uh, a liberating tolerance would basically shut up all the conservatives and encourage speech from leftists. And people don't really talk about this essay very much anymore. But I think they should, because I think actually he makes a very good point here. Any, any speech regime is going to have limits. It, he's right when he says tolerance cannot tolerate intolerance. Actually, when I think of John Locke, father of liberalism, in his letter concerning toleration, he said that some people cannot be tolerated. He was talking specifically about atheists. He said it would undermine his entire philosophy. Uh, John Milton said the same thing in Areopagitica. It's one of the most famous defenses of free speech in history. And he, he said that uh, atheists and Catholics <laughs> should not be tolerated. I'm glad that that is no longer in effect as a papist myself, but I see why he said it. What, what they were arguing is that we have to agree on some basic things in order to get along together, in order to have a political community. If we have nothing in common, if nothing is settled, then, then we do not have a nation or a political community. And what the left has done very successfully over the last century is upend every single thing that we had settled. We don't even speak the same language anymore. I'm not just talking about Spanish. I'm talking about English. Mm -hmm. We don't even know what a man is and what a woman is, so we can't agree on very much else. And I think it's important. While we talk about keeping an open mind and we talk about free and open debate, I think it's important for conservatives to recognize that certain things really do need to be settled. We need to agree on a few basic things in this country if we are to get along, because the, the calls for perfectly open, totally tolerant societies are, are not possible. They've never existed anywhere in the world. George Soros, leftist financier, his, his foundation is called the Open Societies Foundation. And I, I think what has happened in our country is our minds have been so open that our brains have fallen out. <laughs> and that's now <laughs> closing again along the lines of the left. Yeah, yeah. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation again. My guest, Michael Knowles, his book titled Speechless, Controlling Words, Controlling Minds, is published by Regnery. You need to get your copy today. We'll be back in a moment. 
You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Michael Knowles. He's a conservative political commentator and host of the Michael Knowles Show at the Daily Wire. In addition to his daily podcast, he frequently writes opinion, commentary, and speaks on college campuses for the Young America's Foundation. In 2017, he published an Amazon best-selling book, Reasons to Vote for Democrats, a Comprehensive Guide. It consisted of chapter headings and 266 accompanying blank pages. <laughs> well, shortly after the book uh, was released, the President Donald Trump tweeted his endorsement of it at that time. So uh, today we're talking about his book, Speechless, Controlling Words, Controlling Minds. Now, we touched on this just a moment ago, uh, but talk a little bit about the First Amendment and the fact that it doesn't require value neutral uh, a value-neutral public square. We oftentimes acquiesce because we think that unity requires that kind of embrace of pretty much everything, at least quiet embrace, if not endorsement. Yes, I think this has been one of the big missteps that conservatives have made because when, when, when we call ourselves free speech absolutists, and I've heard a number of conservatives say that, I think what we imagine ourselves to be standing for is the free speech American tradition truth, justice, and the American way. But we ought to remember that there are uh, whole swaths of speech that have been off limits from the beginning of the country. I'm thinking of threats, fighting words, uh, sedition, obscenity, uh, for instance, which are still illegal today, though these laws are not really enforced quite as much. When we call ourselves free speech absolutists, one, we're, we're speaking in terms that would be alien to the First Amendment and mm-hmm. to the philosophy of the founding fathers. But two, we are actually advancing political correctness, because remember, the whole point of political correctness is to upend traditional standards. So whether you go along with the new woke standard or if you just give up standards entirely, either way, wittingly or unwittingly, you you are advancing that purpose. So I think it's important to remember that, that we actually can make some judgments about things, especially on obscenity. You know, just about a dozen years ago, we put a pornographer in federal prison for four years just for obscenity. I mean, and that, that was pretty recent. Uh, 20 years ago, a little over 20 years ago, the Clinton administration, a Republican House, Democrat Senate, Democrat president signed into law not one but two anti-indecency bills, the Communications Decency Act and the Child Online Protection Act, which even went even further and banned material that appealed to the prurient interest. Today, probably most people have never even heard that phrase, prurient mm-hmm. interest. Uh, we just think that it's not possible to make distinctions between good and bad things. There was a conservative columnist a few years ago who defended drag queen story hour as one of the blessings of liberty. I'm mm. not joking. And he, he did it because he embraced a radical skepticism. He said, you know, if we don't let perverts twerk for toddlers at the library, why then the left won't get, let us go to church on Sunday? First of all, they already don't want us to go to church on Sunday, <laughs> and they proved it during the coronavirus. But, but second, we have to acknowledge here that if we can't discern between a pervert jiggling for a kid and a pastor preaching the gospel, then we can't discern between anything. What we're admitting is we don't have reason, we don't have moral judgment. And if we don't have those things anymore, unfortunately, we don't have the capacity for self-government. Mm. 
we can't uh, end our conversation without making reference to Dr. Fauci. You point out in the book that in the early days of the epidemic, Dr. Fauci had one clear message for the public. It was stop wearing masks. And according to the good doctor, masking didn't um, just fail to stop the spread of the virus. It actually damaged public health. Then a month later, they all changed their minds. Um, in your chapter in which you uh, write about this, uh, the challenge of the current pandemic and the power that has been uh, wielded and the language that's been used, uh, not for the sake of conveying scientific truth, but for uh, reasons of manipulating the public, um, is an important uh, example of where we are today and what we need to be uh, mindful of moving forward. Can you talk a little bit about um, the 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 challenge that we're currently in and uh, how this uh, locking down dissent has uh, pretty much set in. Yes, I think Dr. Fauci is the high priest of this sort of thing. And he may not even know it. It is funny when you look at Fauci's early statements and he said, don't wear the mask, the masks don't work. And then later he said, you have to wear the mask. And then when he was asked what changed his mind, he admitted it wasn't science. He said it was a political consideration. He wanted to save the masks for his nurse friends And so he lied to the people and said that the masks don't work when he really believed that they did. And Fauci has misled and lied many times over his career. He's a politician. That's what politicians do. But but he doesn't acknowledge that he's a politician. He actually came out and said that what he does is not political. And this is an absurd statement because public health is by definition political. Political and public are are synonyms. Dr. Fauci has worked for the government for, for six presidential administrations. <laughs> he gets a paycheck from the government. He is a politician. And uh, what progressivism has done for the past century is has taken away power from the people and given it to unelected, unaccountable bureaucrats who uh, allegedly know better than all of us how we ought to live our lives. And we are supposed to mindlessly acquiesce to whatever they think. I, I'm not suggesting that Dr. Fauci's never had a good idea in his life. I have yet to hear it, but I'm not saying that. He might have good advice. But what is so offensive, what is so bizarre, is that Dr. Fauci is to be believed not on the basis of whether his advice is right or not. He is to be believed regardless of what he says, even if what he says today contradicts what he Mm -hmm. said just a few hours ago. That, That is the kind of radical, redefinitional power that the left is wielding in their language games. and I, I, it, They're doing it so well that they hide their tracks and they've convinced a large number of people that what they're doing isn't even really politics. Well, in fact, if you are questioning what's been said today and what's been said a week ago, you fall in the category of, of um, you know, terrorists. You're a danger to the to the nation. You write in this chapter, Locking Down Dissent, the left's abuse of scientific credentials to affect political ends long predates the coronavirus pandemic, going back at least to the earliest days of global warming, then known as global cooling. Who knows what it'll be known in the days ahead? So this is there's nothing new under the sun, um, if you will. Now, we're just about out of time. Let me invite you to speak to our listeners today about whether or not you're optimistic, what we need to do to resist the tide, uh, first by understanding what political correctness is and then responding correctly, if you will. I do believe that th- there is some hope. I, ac- I actually do have that glimmer of hope because of the American people, because the left has so overplayed its hand and because reality does reassert itself in the end, though, though people who live in delusion can take us on a bad journey in the meantime. Uh, well, I think what needs to happen now is that the right needs to stop focusing on its procedural abstract arguments about this totally pie-in-the-sky free speech 
that has never existed in practice. The, the fact is that an abstract notion of free speech doesn't mean anything to people who don't have anything to say. And all that the right has been able to agree on since the end of the Cold War is on the importance of temporarily cutting taxes. And I, I think that that is not a governing philosophy. And we need to recognize what our views of the good, the true, and the beautiful, and, and right and wrong are. And, and we need to pursue our political vision, and we need to be able to articulate it. Otherwise, we're going to leave a vacuum that is going to be filled by the left. Yeah, absolutely. Well, one way to begin that process in our own hearts and minds is by reading Speechless, Controlling Words, Controlling Minds, published by Regnery. Michael Knowles, first of all, thank you for the book, and thank you for taking time to talk with us here today. Well, the pleasure is all mine. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Have a great afternoon. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, three California parents are suing to prevent the state of California public school system from reciting prayers to Aztec deities that have been worshipped with human sacrifice, arguing that doing so violates the U.S. and state constitutions. Now, what would be behind this practice? Well, the issue emerged earlier this year when researchers Chris Rufo reported on that particular aspect of the state's ethnic studies curriculum. It was previously noted that the curriculum suggests chants uh, that invoke the deity, and I won't attempt to pronounce the name. Well, that particular deity is considered an Aztec god, small g, that was honored with human sacrifices. Now, according to the World History Encyclopedia, an impersonator of that particular small g god would be sacrificed with his heart removed to honor the deity. In Aztec mythology, uh, this particular deity is the brother of another deity, uh, all of whom appear to be invoking invoked in the same chant that they're trying to get the kids to engage in. Well, the Thomas More Society that represents the parents described the model curriculum as blatantly unconstitutional, saying our clients are not opposed to having students learn about different cultures and religions, including the practices of the Aztecs. That's a quote from Paul Jana, who's a partner at uh, one of the law firms uh, and the Thomas More Society Special Counsel goes on to say the California State Board of Education's approval ethnic studies model curriculum goes far beyond that by directing students to pray to Aztec deities. This portion of the ethnic studies model curriculum is not only offensive, but blatantly unconstitutional. End quote. Well, both California Board of Education and Department of Education are listed as defendants in the complaint. It's uh, trying to um, seek a temporary restraining order that would prevent defendants from authorizing, promoting or permitting the use of Aztec prayers and the ash chant uh, in California public schools and also require defendants to direct those under their authority not to use the Aztec prayer or the chant in public schools. And again, this is a pending lawsuit the outcome of which uh, we don't yet know. Well, as part of the filing, Thomas More Society included a declaration from Dr. Alan Sandstrom, who serves as a professor of anthropology at Purdue University in Fort Wayne. He stated that while he's in favor of the model curriculum's goal, he thinks the use of the chant is a mistake. The affirmation is... Uh, presented amounts to a religious activity that I think has no place in public schools, he said. Well, the state's Department of Education didn't respond to requests for comment and the Board of Education declined to provide one, particularly since there's a suit pending. Uh, under the curriculum's lesson resources, uh, they lay out the chant and more generally uh, defend chants as energizers that can bring unity. This section includes several ethnic studies oriented chants, proverbs and affirmations, the document reads. 
These can be used to as energizers to bring the class together, build unity around ethnic study principles and values, and to reinvigorate the class following a lesson that may be emotionally taxing or even when student engagement may appear to be low. So engaging in a uh, chant, invoking an Aztec god that was involved in human sacrifice may not be the way to go. In other news, Democratic candidate for governor in Virginia, Terry McAuliffe, and I mentioned yesterday there was a debate in the state of Virginia and one other state, the only two that have uh, gubernatorial races pending. Uh, He said he doesn't think parents should control what schools uh, in the state teach. I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach. McAuliffe, who's previously served as governor of Virginia from 2014 to 2018, during a Tuesday debate with Republican candidate Glenn Youngkin. Well, McAuliffe made the remarks in response to an argument that parents should be more involved in the decisions of local school districts. I agree with your conclusion, Terry, that we should let local school districts actually make these decisions, his opponent said. But we must ask them to include concepts of safety and privacy and respect in the decision. And we must demand that they include parents in this dialogue. Uh, What we've seen over the course of the last 20 months is our school system refusing to engage with parents. In fact, in Fairfax County this past week, again in Virginia, we watched parents so upset because there was such sexually explicit material in the library that they'd never seen. It was shocking. He continued. And in fact, you vetoed the bill that would have informed parents that they were there. You believe school systems should tell children what to do. I believe parents should be in charge of their kids' education. End quote. Well, McAuliffe, the Democratic um, gubernatorial candidate, replied that the parents had the right to uh, veto books under the bill he vetoed. I'm not going to let parents come into schools and actually take books out and make their own decision, he said. Well, the exchange came after a question about the Virginia Department of Education's newly released guidelines that call for school districts to allow transgender students to use the bathroom and locker room of their preferred gender identity, whether or not. Uh, They have uh, genitalia that matches their preference. Uh, McAuliffe said that he welcomed local school district input into such policies, but that he supports the the state's releasing guidelines on such issues through the Department of Education. Well, the debate on Tuesday between these two candidates, who are essentially neck and neck, was the last before the uh, state's November 2nd election, with many Analysts monitoring the first major election in the post-Trump era for insight into next year's midterm election. The polls currently show a tight race between the two candidates with the real clear politics average showing McAuliffe leading Youngkin by just under three points. And that's within the margin of error. Well, there is an overt war on women in this country. Emmy Griffin points out for starters, people pushing the transgender ideology want to make um, women obsolete and invade their private spaces. Next, the pro-choice camp is not only killing millions of pre-born girls, but is actively lying to and preying on vulnerable women. And now the government wants our young adult women to sign up for the draft, a proposition that made um, headway last week via the National Defense Authorization Act, uh, which passed the House with bipartisan support. The same is expected in the Senate. What was the justification for the action? Florida Republican Representative Michael Walls reasoned that even though we would hope that the military is made up of volunteers, if there was a draft, the U.S. would need every able-bodied person. Ohio Republican Representative Brad Winstrap, an ex-Army surgeon, said there are still physical requirements for certain jobs that you have to be able to perform and fulfill. It doesn't mean that, you know, if there is a draft, a woman necessarily has to go in the infantry. 
end quote. Well, is this supposed to comfort and reassure the countless parents and young girls who would be affected by the policy? Again, Emmy Griffin goes on as political commentator Tony Perkins put it. What parents watching the Taliban machete and rape its way through Afghanistan would sentence our girls, especially unwilling ones, to killing fields like that one, end quote. Well, this whole debacle can be traced back to the poisonous roots of feminist ideology. Women, they say, are equal to and interchangeable with men. And ever since the mantra was declared, the definition of what it means to be equal to a man began to change. Feminist ideology misses the crucial point. Women and men have an equal amount of value, but their functions are different. Women do many things far better than men can in terms of creating, communicating, nurturing. Men are gifted with superior size and strength to be used in the protection of those weaker than themselves. Well, Emmy Griffin goes on in her article, but pointing out that it's very likely that in the very near future, women will be eligible for the draft. And while everyone hopes the draft will uh, never be necessary in the future, that we would continue to have an all-volunteer army, there is by no means a guarantee that that will be the case. We'll continue to follow that story as it makes it way, its way rather to the Senate, where it's expected sufficient numbers of Republicans will also support the measure. Well, we are out of time. I want to thank James Blend for producing, Clark Hilton for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. We're just thrilled to have you with us. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs>